This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. It certainly feels like hope is in short supply in 2020, and it's uh, pretty easy, I I think, to be pessimistic uh, about things. I mean, even before this year, even before the pandemic, though, uh, there was no shortage of pessimism. And maybe it was easy to be pessimistic about other things. The state of the world, poverty, environmental challenges, conflict, politics, you name it. Now we've got another big one after this year added to the list. So where do we find hope? Where and how do we find optimism? That's the subject of a fascinating new book that is also going to be part of an event, virtual event tomorrow through WordFest, tomorrow night, wordfest.com. The book is called Commanding Hope. The Power We Have to Renew a World in Peril. Thomas Homer Dixon is the author of this book, holds a university research chair at the University of Waterloo, is executive director of the Cascade Institute at Royal Roads University, more at homerdixon.com. He joins us on the line here this afternoon. Professor Homer Dixon, thanks so much for joining us here. Welcome oh, to the program. Absolutely delighted to be with you. Uh, what's interesting is that you actually, as I understand, had this book completed before the pandemic uh, arose in March. What, what did that mean for this process and what did it mean for the book? I didn't change the underlying argument because the underlying argument actually kind of applied to the pandemic crisis. But I needed I, I, the, the book was already uh, in galleys, so it actually looked like a book in a PDF. And I told my editor that I needed to go back and reread it sentence by sentence to adjust the, the wording in places and add some passages and some context relating to the pandemic so that people could understand that it, it's still really related to the crisis that we have to face right now. There's, a, of course, a challenge of hope, like you were just mentioning in your introduction. Uh, and it seems particularly acute for people in the world today because of the pandemic. If I hadn't talked about it, it would have seemed pretty odd. Right. Yeah, no kidding. Um, but as you say, there, there are a lot of underlying issues uh, that, that you address in the book that, that apply here, right? I mean, it's obviously unique and, and concerning situation, but what, what are those, those common threats to some of the other issues you explore in the book? A range of challenges that uh, our society faces, Canada, uh, Alberta, British Columbia, where I am right now, but also the world, uh, uh, rising political and econ- or social and economic inequality uh, in some places in the world, for instance, south of our border, uh, a shift towards deep political polarization and even uh, sort of populist authoritarianism. Uh, climate change issues have been a concern of mine for decades. I've been working on the, on, on the social science related to climate change for a long period of time. And, uh, and and weakening of democracy around the world. I think we can see, especially in, in, in the face of the pandemic, a lot of authoritarian leaders have used this as an opportunity to try to uh, enhance their power within their societies. So, you know, I look forward to later in the century, especially when it comes to issues like climate change, and I'm deeply worried for my kids. I have a, a 15-year-old boy and a 12-year-old girl, and and they're becoming aware of what's going on around them, and, and uh, they're 
deeply, deeply concerned. And when you look out a few decades, uh, it, it, it looks like a very turbulent time that could be really, really threaten their well-being. So, so I realized a few years ago that what I wanted to do most in this book was write a, a write a book about hope. Because if our children lose hope, then uh, then the worst will really come to pass. It's a it's an essential starting point for making things better. Well, it's interesting because, as you say, you, you've written a lot about some of the, the problems and challenges we face as a society, trying to explain to people how serious they are. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and here you have a book, you know, selling people on, on hope, uh, that, I, that I think we can have realistic hope, realistic optimism, and recognize the challenges we face. But does, does it seem or might it seem to people like a, like a shift or an about-face that <laughs> these the author of these books that have left us feeling pessimistic yeah. is now telling us about about the importance of hope. Yeah, it's a bit of a head slapper, I suppose. Homer Dixon, you know, I've been, had the reputation as being the doommeister in the past. So right. I had a book, I had a book uh, uh, in 2000 called The Ingenuity Gap, and another one in 2006 called The Upside of Down. And those books um, uh, were really diagnostic. They were they kind of got down into the guts of, of why we we seem to be. Uh, so unable as societies and as a as a species to solve some of the critical problems we face, uh, and uh, and where that might take us in the future. Uh, and and this third book was always intended to be. It, I, I thought there were going to be three books, and it was always intended to be kind of the the prescriptive book. Uh, I think that frankly, um, a lot of folks have realized since I wrote those two earlier books, which were published in time of more general optimism, that, uh, yeah, we're in real trouble. Uh, so a, a lot of what, without patting myself on the back too much, I think a lot of what I said in those two books has, has largely been verified. And, uh, and, and now's the time to try to figure out what we're going to do, and I think that the audience is ready for that. Uh, but that being said, I found this an, a stunningly hard book to write. It took me eight years. I started it three times. And uh, and hope is a is a tangled and difficult topic because a lot of people think it's a very weak emotion, uh, and uh, and that it's not the right tool we need to to as a starting point to fix what's going on. I disagree, and that's what my book is about. But uh, it, I, basically, I, I I say we have to reinvent the idea uh, as a starting point. Well, and further to that, because you're right, it it, it feels very passive that. Hope, you know, the, the idea of hoping for the best implies exactly. sitting back and doing nothing, right? Right. Um, and, and obviously that's not what, what you mean no. when you talk about hope. How, how do you define it? Well, you know, that's why, that's why I have this title, uh, Commanding Hope, and it's got a double meaning to it, a double entendre, quite intentionally. It's, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a kind of hope that I envision, and I talk about in great detail, that, that commands our attention. It, 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 uh, it has power over us. Um, but also, there's this idea that we can actually take hope and make it something new for ourselves, that we can, in a sense, command it and, uh, and uh, direct its, uh, its focus. So it has three components, and you mentioned one of them before, interestingly, uh, this idea of sort of realistic optimism. I would call it uh, honest hope. Um, that's hope that is uh, grounded very much in a realistic understanding of the challenges we face. It doesn't engage in wishful thinking about things like climate change. Uh, recognizes that if we're going into a uh, a tough few decades and uh, and and understand the constraints that we we're going to be operating under uh, so that's the first and then the second component is what I call astute hope and that's hope that's grounded in a very accurate understanding of not just ourselves and how our own minds work and how our attitudes where our attitudes come from about uh, other people for instance but also 
how other people's attitudes work, and get in, so we can better get inside the minds of other people, their worldviews, see the world from their perspective, so that potentially we can work with them better to solve our problems together. And then the, the third kind of hope, the third component is what I call powerful hope, which is hope that's focused on a very clear, uh, a very, very clear object, a sense of the possible desirable world that we want in the future, so that we have a sense for where we're going. And I spend the last part of the book talking about what I think that object should be, what that desirable world in the future should be. And that gives us motivation, that gives us a sense of agency to actually change things. So those three components, honest, astute, and powerful hope, go together to make up what I call commanding hope, which is a, a pretty different idea of hope than the kind of passive, wistful, wishful thinking that I think a lot of us regard hope as right now. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's interesting, too, because, you know, the, the issues you've written about and, and the challenges that humanity has faced, continues to face, and, and will face for, for the foreseeable future, you know, there are also... Pro, you know, there's also progress that we've made. Um, you know, I mean, you know, look at world poverty uh, over the last 50 years or reducing the risk uh, of global nuclear conflict. Are, are there areas where you see tangible, meaningful progress, examples oh, we can point to? Yeah, oh, that, absolutely. And I spent quite a bit of time in the book talking about that. So, you know, there are folks like Stephen Pinker, and I have a great deal of respect for Stephen Pinker, mm-hmm. uh, who, who talk about, who look at the past and look at the progress we've made, especially over the last half century or century globally, in terms of reducing poverty, uh, child mortality, uh, improving human rights. And, and, and a lot of that progress is absolutely undeniable. There are vastly fewer p- people living in poverty, much smaller percentage of people living in poverty up to the time of the pandemic than there, than there have been for many decades. So so those, and, and the world is less violent, too, something that Steven Pinker has emphasized a lot. Right. Um, so all of that I acknowledge, uh, but, but I think where these folks make a mistake is they sort of extrapolate those past very positive trends more or less indefinitely into the future. And I think what we're seeing are a lot of signals, and I talk about this in the beginning of the book, I actually have a chapter titled Signals. We're seeing a lot of signals that things are starting to go off the rails. And, uh, and, and you know, when it comes, for instance, to, to uh, the threat, uh, the risk of nuclear war, I think it's, in some respects it's almost as high as it ever was in the past. There are a whole new range of nuclear technologies being developed. We still have uh, uh, arsenals of missiles on both the, on, on, in both Russia and the United States that are on, on uh, launch on warning alert, uh, ready to go in 30 minutes' notice. Uh, and uh, and, and uh, we have, frankly, a president in the United States that I don't think has even a remote comprehension of, uh, of the risks of, strategi- of the strategic relationship between the United States and Russia. So, uh, so we, people who know the business, and I've worked with quite closely with these people in past decades, uh, they say that the risk of nuclear war has actually gone up, especially under the Trump administration. So, so yeah, I, I think I think we're kind of at an inflection point. I think that there are signals that uh, uh, that we are we, we you know the human well-being could be peaking, and that's not good, uh, especially with a pandemic. The pandemic has really set countries back around the world. India India's economy has contracted by 25 percent. The situation in Latin America is absolutely catastrophic in terms of unemployment. So you know we're at a real tipping point here, and I think we need to get serious about that. Well, and, and, you know, it it can feel overwhelming, too, right, to people, the idea that, you know, in in the face of all of this, how can I make a difference? Or how can uh, a politician that I elect possibly make a difference? Or these are mammoth, you know, in some cases, maybe even existential challenges. Yeah, absolutely. So, So 
you know, where, where is that starting point for people? Well, so that's, you know, that's such an important point. And, and to address it, I tell a story through the, through, through, through the book. It actually, it's a story, it's a, it, it's a story about a person in history. Uh, it starts at the beginning of the book, and it, it concludes at the end of the book, and we come back to this person repeatedly. Her name is Stephanie May. Uh, she, uh, she was a housewife in Connecticut in the 1950s. Uh, she was very concerned about what she read in the local newspapers about the um, uh, testing of nuclear weapons, of atomic bombs and, and hydrogen bombs in the atmosphere around the world. Um, the superpowers at that point were testing hundreds of weapons in the atmosphere and spreading basically nuclear radiation around the entire planet, which was being concentrated in the food chain and getting into into people's milk. And uh, there's lots of scientific evidence that it could have raised the rates of leukemia in children, for example. She was really concerned about this, so she started organizing locally in her in her own community with a little petition, and she phoned a lot of clergy members and got got them to announce the petition to their to their uh, parishioners, and and uh, and then she, she worked with another uh, local uh, mother and went down to Washington and presented the petition to to uh, senior politicians, and 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 within within a relatively short pe- per- period of time, Stephanie had had mobilized mothers uh, across the United States. And that movement of mothers around, ultimately around the world uh, uh, was one of the key factors that led to the Partial Test Ban Treaty, which put nuclear testing underground in 1963. And uh, it was a remarkable, remarkable effort by a woman who had no particular expertise, was just extraordinarily energetic and very smart. And she had a particular kind of hope, too. And so I spent, I, I was able to access her memoirs and her scrapbooks from that period, just extraordinary resource. And, uh, and, and I was able to uh, sort of unpack her idea of hope. And so I talk about that. She's a, kind of an, an exemplar of what I'm talking about, showing that individuals can actually make a huge difference, especially if they work together. Well, the event tomorrow night, it's a virtual uh, conversation happening through WordFest uh, tomorrow night, I believe, at uh, 7 o'clock is what I have, wordfest.com, and uh, much more on uh, this and your other works at commandinghope.com and homerdixon.com. Thank you so much for making some time for us here this afternoon. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much. All the best. Uh, That is uh, Thomas Homer Dixon. His latest book is called Commanding Hope, The Power We Have to Renew a World in Peril. HomerDixon.com, and uh, if you want to uh, pick up the conversation, an uh, online conversation happening tomorrow night as part of uh, online virtual WordFest. Uh, more details at WordFest.com, but this is set for uh, 7 p.m. tomorrow night. All right, got to take another quick break here. We are uh, back to wrap things up on a Wednesday afternoon right after this. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.